for Israelis, there's before October 7th and after. So the idea of a book called The Genius of Israel that was written during those before times may not feel like the most relevant reading material, but it is. Startup Nation authors Saul Singer and Dan Siener have again joined forces to dissect what makes Israelis tick and keep on ticking. One conclusion, it's all about the unity of purpose. And if that unity was once what made us strong, well, today... Now it's become existential. If we don't stay unified, we're just going to go into a downward spiral. That was Saul Singer. And this week, I, Amanda Borchel Don, spoke with Singer and found out what matters now. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Saul, thank you so much for joining me today in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. Great to be here, Amanda. You know, I really enjoy historical fiction. And since Israel is right now in the middle of a war, at times when I was reading your new book, The Genius of Israel, I felt like this was historical fiction. I felt like, wow, I wish I were living in that Israel, the pre-war Israel, this Israel of the genius of Israel, the Israel that put Bereshit almost on the moon, the Israel that talks about how happy we are, the Israel that talks about how every week we have a Thanksgiving dinner. But then I realized that there are two words that you define in the book that is still the Israel that we're living in today. And those two words are chevre and gibush. Okay, so let's begin by defining the word chevre. So both the words are related because they're both about the sense of group that we have in Israel, the sense of solidarity, believe it or not. I mean, ancient history, a few weeks ago, we were in the massive protests, uh, and it seems we, we were so divided, and that's exactly the story here, is that we went sort of from the depths of division to the heights of unity. Uh, but yeah, this book is really about that kind of sense that we're not just individuals here, we are part of a group, and this is what society is telling you all the time from a very young age. Uh, so chevre is your friends, is any sort of group. It could be the company you're in. It could be the people you're you're going on a hike with. It's it's you know a kind of sense that we're part of something together. And gibush is kind of the process of bringing people together, which is uh, you know it's such a 
large, such an important value here. So we, that's why you don't really have a word for it in English, because we work at it. And we, we're constantly trying to form tighter groups, whether it's in youth movements or in the army or in companies or in everywhere. It's so true. And I think the most uh, accurate translation would be, in American terms at least, is team building. So Gibush, they have uh, in workplaces, of course, team building exercises. But as you just mentioned, this Gibush idea is from it's from preschool. It's not even, you know, in primary school, it's from preschool. This idea of everyone is responsible for everyone else. Everyone is together. And and yes, the people who you most associate with are your chevre, are the people that you are linked to emotionally, physically, and responsibility-wise. And I'm seeing that right now. I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that my oldest son is joining the army tomorrow. And he is joining what is called Garin Nahal. And he did a year of service before joining the army with the same people he's going to serve in the army with. And they'll be together in the army and they'll be together serving in communities as well. And he said to me, you know, Ima, mother, I'm going in and I feel already that I'm responsible for other people. And it really gives me a sense of purpose. And the sense of purpose is the other theme that I want to talk to you about that comes through your book. How important is that here in Israel? It's absolutely, it's critical in terms of our well-being. You know, humans aren't meant to be alone. And you look at every study about happiness, and you ask, you know, so what is the key to happiness? That's what people want. And it's it's relationships, it's friends, it's family, it's chevre, and, you know, that that's what explains the crazy thing, which is, you know, we talk about Israel being the fourth in the world in happiness, according to the this UN report. Um, and yeah, people think, well, we're not a very happy country right now. And uh, but I think because it's about human connection and it's about purpose. And when they say happiness, it's not really happiness; it's life satisfaction. That it's still going to be high. And in fact, it could, it can't really get much higher than fourth, but it could be higher in a way because I hope that we're going to be more bonded after this. We could be less, and that would be more than tragic. It would be an existential problem. But in some ways, we may be more together than we were before, certainly than during the protests. So let's put all of these things together, the gibush, the chevre, the purpose, and talk about what's happening here in Israel now since October 7th. So we have are now seeing crazy amounts of solidarity. I have to introduce another Hebrew concept here with the Tzav Shmone. Tzav Shmone literally means order number eight. It's what you're called up. You get this kind of recording on your phone. Please come in. Uh, to your unit, um, and everybody was receiving this. Uh, you know, we have three hundred sixty thousand or so people in Milouim and reserve duty, which is more the the armies of France and Germany, or almost uh, combined. It's a crazy number. So it seems like everybody's been called up, but it's not just being called up to the military. You're being called up, no matter who you are. You're called up to volunteer, to cover for all the people. You know, everybody's covering for someone. Uh, 
it's a society that's been mobilized in a, in a crazy way, and you, you can't really, uh, there's nothing to compare it to. It's, it's not like the U.S. after 9-11 or something. It's not just a feeling of we're more together. It's everybody's personally involved doing something. This ties into your previous book, Startup Nation, because a lot of the people who are driving the networks of volunteer army that we have going on right now are from this high-tech sphere. Talk about that a little bit. So this was a crazy surprise during the protests because the high-tech sector was the, the most apolitical you could imagine. They almost were acting as if they weren't in Israel because their startups have global markets and they're busy, you know, in the world, uh, citizens of the world, sort of. And suddenly, when this protest, when they felt that democracy that they took for granted was threatened, they just organized like crazy and became the leaders, among the leaders of the protest. Um, and, you know, and they pulled out the kind of social nuclear weapon, which is refusing to serve in the military. But of course, when we were attacked, um, automatically, everyone ran to their units right away. And of course, you know, you had people from all of the world coming back to Israel, filling the airplanes, desperate to get back to, to go to the front to, to fulfill their tzavshmone. Now, you just mentioned that they're running to go back to their units, and we're talking about the high-tech industry. And so it has to be defined as well that the high-tech industry is often the people who became the officers in the army or who served in special units or who were the natural leaders or the leaders who are trained even in, and this is in your book, the youth movements that are so dominant in Israel. So talk about how all of this filters together. So, you know, when we wrote Startup Nation, we, of course, we spent a lot of uh, time talking about the military. But even we, I don't think, fully appreciated how the society is training you to be part of something larger than yourself. And you see this in the youth movements, uh, this aspect of gibouche. You know, one thing that struck me sort of as an American who grew up in the U.S., and you come here, and your kids are going to, you know, high school or elementary school, and you figure out, you notice that the teachers and the parents and the students are upset if the class, their homeroom class, isn't mikubash, isn't kind of brought together. You know, that that's, that's worse than not teaching uh, well enough, that they're not learning well enough. Most important thing is they're a unit. And that's crazy, because in America, the, the classroom isn't even a thing, let alone brought together. And so this is happening very, very early on. And it, the epitome of it is when you get to the military, because you have to work as a unit, or else you can't accomplish your mission. Uh, but the society is training you all Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. 
And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniel, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Long. And of course, after the army, you, that's how you live. That's Those are your values. Your values are much less individualistic than in most modern wealthy democracies. So I just had a very interesting experience about with the push-pull of individualism and the unit. I was in a kibbutz called Samar near Elat, and it's still a kibbutz, meaning it's still really a, a unified unit. All their money is pulled together. And what was very interesting about this kibbutz is that each house was different. Each person could build their own different house, and each person could decide if they were going to work or not work. And somehow the kibbutz absorbed all of this because of this yin-yang kind of situation in which some people decided to work a lot, some people decided to work less, and then some people decided that in a month or so I'm going to work a lot. Really interesting. And how do you see the kibbutz movement and things of this nature feeding into what we're talking about here as well? So the kibbutz movement of course, is the extreme example of this kind of uh, kind of unity and bonding. Uh, but it, even though it's a small number of people, it was tremendously influential in the founding of the state. And you know, at that time, all the officers, it seems, all the pilots and everything came from the kibbutz movement. Tremendous cultural influence, uh, and it also um, kind of represented the socialist ethos of the founders. They were all socialists, basically. Uh, so we had, you know, some Israelis say, well, you know, our solidarity is, is waning. They complain, you know, kind of nostalgia for the, uh, the solidarity of the founding generation. But to me, it shows that it's such a huge value in Israel, that that is the ideal that we hold ourselves to. It may be less than the founders, uh, but in a way, I actually think what this has done to us is we have to refound the country. In a way, we have become the founding generation after four generations, which is a crazy thing, but that, that connects with what I was saying before, is that maybe we'll actually have more solidarity than we had before. You know, most of the hostages, of course, came from these kibbutzim along the border with Gaza. And one can't help but look at how much their communities are pulling together, how they've moved as communities to different locations throughout the country. I believe there are 200,000 internally displaced people right now in Israel. And do you think that this, in this new refounding of the nation, having seen how cohesive these communities are, do you think that this will influence Israeli society in the future as well? Well, 
What's interesting is that some of the people from these kibbutzim are saying that when we rebuild, we're going to double in size. And that goes back to what you were saying about purpose. I think that people who go live in a kibbutz in an area that's challenged, let's say, that there's a sense of purpose in that. There's there's a sense of pioneering, old-fashioned pioneering in that. And in fact, the, the kibbutzim were created in places that were on purpose, uh, were kind of trying to settle areas that were less settled, and that was that was part of the pioneering. Uh, of course, you know, making the desert green, agriculture, uh, you know, you read Ben-Gurion's uh, memoir, and it was all about, you know, tilling the land. That was, you know, you just physically, that's how you build the country. That's really fascinating. And of course, the kibbutzim that are being displaced aren't just along the Gaza border, but also along the border with Lebanon. And that plays into what you're saying about uh, having settled in the more, quote unquote, dangerous areas to really spread out the Israeli settlement. And, you know, obviously, as a mother of seven, I've always been very uh, envious of the kibbutzim for the laundry system that they have there. But being a mother of seven, that's another theme that you bring forward in your book and how fertility rates in Israel are, shall we say, a bit higher than in most of the Western world. So they're they're much higher. And this is actually a huge part that people don't think about in terms of the happiness and optimism and orientation of society. Because every single rich country now in the world has dropped below replacement. The fertility rate, uh, the replacement is 2.1%. Below that, you are shrinking and aging, and above that, you're young and growing. And we're the only ones that are young and growing, and it's by an enormous margin. The OECD average is like 1.6, and we're about three, so double. And so what that means is like compared to Japan, by 2050 or so, we're going to almost double in population, and they're going to lose about a third. Our average age here is about 30. By 2050, it's going to go up to maybe 33. In Europe, though, the average is like 47. So that's like 15 years older. So we are a young and growing country. And these other countries, you know, they've got to feel like they're kind of winding down in a way. Well, we're just beginning. And this is a huge difference in terms of innovation, dynamism, the mood. Uh, We have a sense of future here even at these incredibly difficult times, I think we're not going to lose that. And again, maybe we're actually going to be even more determined to you know, rebuild. Now, in terms, again, about the fertility, most people outside Israel would say, yeah, that's obviously the ultra-Orthodox, the Hayadim. I, of course, am living proof that it is not true. But there is no doubt that the ultra-Orthodox sector is growing at a more rapid rate than the secular Israel. And there are economists, of course, like Dan Ben-David, who point to this as one of the major, major things to watch out for in Israeli society. So what we've been talking about until now is mostly normative, shall we say, secular Israel or national religious Israel. How do you see everything we've been talking about in the ultra-Orthodox society as well? Yeah, so that's it. I, if you had to put your finger on one thing in terms that you know worries us a bit about the solidarity and unity of the country, 
is the issue of the ultra-Orthodox. Because, you know, we have all these different groups that are kind of in a balance of some kind. You know, the Arabs and the secular and the religious and the, you know, ultra-Orthodox and, you know, very ethnic differences, all these things. But if one group is growing in population substantially, that could, like, kind of upset the balance, especially if there's tension, and there is a lot of tension right now. And in a way, that tension, I think, was underlying the judicial protests, the kind of fear of of secular and even religious, normal religious society, that we're going to get overwhelmed by the, the political power of the ultra-Orthodox. Now, in the book, we show that the demographic figures people use are actually probably exaggerated because they're losing, it's not they have a high birth rate, but they're also losing people. Um, that's one thing. But more important than the numbers is, are we, do we continue to be a us and them? Are they a them to us and are we a them to them? Uh, and I think the way to think about it is so long as that's true, we have a problem. We have to be, they can't, they can't be alien to us and vice versa. Um, so that's, that's really the challenge. Because if they, if they're not a they, a them, then it doesn't matter how many there are, if they're part of Israel. And some people say that, that the Haredim could actually be the biggest aliyah to Israel. Uh, in a way, and they are becoming more Israeli. And and we saw thousands of them trying to get into military service just now. So there are positive signs, but there's a lot of work to do in it, and it's not nothing guaranteed. That's really interesting what you're saying. And I would have to say just from living here since 1999 that the us and them of, shall we say, national religious and secular Israel has been, for the most part, erased, maybe not entirely, but the us and them of the ultra-Orthodox is maybe even potentially growing stronger. I don't know. If you look at Jerusalem where you live, every time a large wave of ultra-Orthodox move into a neighborhood the neighborhood's dynamic shifts drastically. Do you see that changing here? So yeah, that's part of the tension. Um, but to me, the biggest part is this sense that the Haredim aren't pulling their weight. And the opposite, that the the non-Haredim are supporting them. They're not working. They're not serving in the army. And this is, you know, tremendous resentment against this. And in a way, secular society during these protests has said, Ad Khan, we're not going to take this anymore. And the war, even more so, I think, gives that feeling. But I also think the opposite feeling has also grown. The Haredim are becoming more Israeli. They're more on smartphones. They're more, you know, speaking Hebrew and learning. Uh, there are, and their economic situation has been improving somewhat, which creates enormous pressure to work. And I know, they know that the current situation is not sustainable. So the question is, do we come to some kind of compromise that brings them more into society where people feel that they are contributing what they need to contribute, whether it's in the army or not? Uh, that would change things a lot. 
and if you think of it in terms of post October 7th, which everything unfortunately is colored by, you have definitely heard of uh, initiatives by the ultra Orthodox to support the soldiers, to support the reservists. That's definitely something we're hearing about. Let's talk about how the Arab Israeli society fits into the genius of Israel. Well, that's another really actually positive surprise during the war, which is in 2014, we saw kind of some Arab rioting in the context of a Gaza war, a Gaza operation. And so you project that forward, you think, okay, this is even worse. Of course, we're going to have even worse rioting, and the opposite happened. You have polls showing that uh, the Israeli-Arab identification with Israel is actually at a record high. You have I think a lot of understanding among Israeli Arabs who are seeing the Israeli media, not just the Arab, Arabic media. And they're seeing that, you know, Arabs were killed by Hamas. Arabs are hostages. Uh, there was a, Bed a Bedouin uh, unit that, you know, made some viral video about, we're going to get you Hamas. And so it, it's, in a way, it's driven the Israeli Arabs to be more Israeli, uh, which is which is so important. And we also have the phenomenon of Mansour Abbas, this new uh, Arab party that's, instead of you know fighting the Palestinian cause, very political and not trying to uh, improve the role of their people, the condition, uh, this party very much is. They, they accept Israel. They just want to have you know more equality, better situation. And... Uh, uh, that's a, a very positive, important development. Now, if there's one sector of society that concerns me the most, it's the extremist settler sector. And they're outliers in any number of ways, but how would you fold them into your rubric of the genius of Israel? Are they part of this leadership training? And if so, in a positive direction? Well, the radical settlers who are attacking Palestinians and stuff are, are a horrible, uh, you know, extremism. We have extremism in, in our society. Um, and, I mean, part of the problem with this government is they actually kind of have representation in a way in the government. That will stop. This government will fall and they will be out. And that will help things right there. But yeah, it's 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 a problem we sort of have to combat and we have to deal with. So obviously books take a long time and you've been working on this book for years, I would imagine. And also books go to the publishing house way earlier and to the printer way before we actually see them on the shelves. This book is uh, amazingly up to date, of course, because it includes the summer protests and things of that nature. But I'm sure everyone is asking you this, but were you to write this book right now, how would you be influenced by everything you've been seeing since October 7th? So, first of all, the book, what we describe is, in a way, compared to now, uh, sort of nice to have. What we are talking about is that Israel is a much better situation as a society compared to other modern societies because we have this more human group feeling that's making us more satisfied with our lives. Um, so, but, so it, it was kind of making us happier and more connected and all these things, but now it's become existential. If we don't stay unified, we're just going to go into a downward spiral. And 
Uh, so our number one challenge is to double down on what makes us strong, what we're seeing right now during the war, not to lose it. That is our challenge going forward. And, you know, we would we would write another chapter or so about that to show, you know, to talk about what happened here during the war and also how is it going forward. Um, and, you know, so this is the key thing to watch and more than watch to, to work on. Sassinger, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Great to be here, Amanda. My 19-year-old son cut his fingernails at my sink last night. He cleaned most of it up, but this morning I found a sliver here and there on the counter. And in my pre-coffee morning haze, I thought to myself, wow, should I keep these pieces of his DNA just in case he's kidnapped? No, I reassured myself. He's joining the army today and they take DNA samples there. He's set. Special thanks to Charlie Summers, who helps me with the What Matters Now transcripts. This episode was recorded at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. What Matters Now is produced and edited by The Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Send us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next week, shalom. Shalom.